Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Thank you, SZ. We are kickserveradio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we are excited because we just witnessed some pretty serious tennis that we weren't really sure was even going to come off. Kickserve Radio is comprised of myself, I'm Andy Zoden, our resident former U.S. Open champion, Mats Vlander. And Mats, you won this thing back in 88. You had an unbelievable final with Yvonne Lendl. We saw great drama today uh, as we tape. We're taping on the day of this U.S. Open final, but I, I don't know that we could accuse this final of necessarily being played at the same level of tennis as the one that you played with Yvonne Lendl when you won this thing in 88. Andy, thank you. Nice to be with you guys again. You know, I think the biggest difference there is, first of all, they hit the ball harder on average today, obviously, than we used to do. But it was my seventh uh, major win, 11th final. It was Lendl's most probably 15th Grand Slam final. So it wasn't like the first time around. And I think that's what you saw today. I don't feel like we choked at all in that finals. I don't remember Lendl choking in any final. Me neither, uh, I have to say. But I think they did today. But it's their first final for Zverev and the first win for team. So drama was there, Andy. It was a brilliant final in terms of drama. Johnny, you were a little disappointed that you didn't feel like how tight these players were was something that these announcers were willing to talk about. We're going to talk more about this final weekend in segment number two, but talk about what you thought you were seeing versus what you felt like you weren't hearing. Well, you know, I thought that Zverev um, has such a huge serve, huge game, and he controlled a lot of the points. When you have a serve like that, when you're blasting them in at 130 plus, and then you get into the fifth set and you're, you're throwing in 68, 72 mile an hour serves, uh, I think that's worth mentioning. He got super, super tight on that serve. I know that it's been one of his problems in his game is, is the, the double faulting, but gosh, I mean, he's got a monster serve, but it just, he wasn't able to lock it in in the big moments. And I think that's where, had he been able to get out of trouble when he was tight, if he could have served his way out, I think he would be the U.S. Open champion. And just it became a, a, you know, a weakness at the end, unfortunately. That, of course, Johnny Levine, our resident Texas Longhorn two-time All-American. And we are going to be talking about the fact that there most definitely is an I in team, and the world knows it now. Dominic Team is your U.S. Open champion, his first major. Congratulations to Naomi Osaka for winning her third and her second U.S. Open. But, fellas, before we get more under the hood with these finals, let's talk about the event as a whole. Let's let's take what we'll call a Goodyear blimp's eye view of the entire couple of weeks. And, Matt, as we led up to this, 
we weren't sure what to make of a potential U.S. Open that would not have Roger Federer for sure, that, as you said, most probably would not have Rafael Nadal, that did have Novak Djokovic, but unfortunately not for as long into the tournament as we would have hoped or expected. Let's get right to the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Was it a good decision to disqualify him? <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, not a good decision. It was a must decision. Um, obviously, he didn't mean to hit it uh, as hard as he did. Clearly, he didn't mean to aim it. But even if that ball hits over to the ball kit and the ball kit isn't paying attention, uh, it's, it's just still rising when it hits the, the back wall. So that's too hard. But, I, I mean, obviously, it was a completely an uh, incident that will never happen in his life or any tennis player's life, most probably. It was not meant. Uh, he was upset, though, slightly upset, but they only had one. Uh, decision to make so um, I think the US Open came off Andy I'd like to hear what you think because first of all I've been working every single day for two weeks calling uh, matches for Eurosport so I've watched uh, every match I could find on the um, ESPN app on a Eurosport uh, app as well and I've seen everything and I have to say that I'm very proud to be calling myself a tennis pro former or current because I have to say the players were they tried hard they behaved properly they were fair I mean it was just a brilliant tournament at basically we don't need fans for the players to play their best tennis and where you notice that there were no fans is in their victory celebrations Naomi Osaka hardly put her hands above her head well the adrenaline is not pumping when there's no one watching not that adrenaline, a different adrenaline. The only one that suffered the most from not having a crowd, Novak Djokovic. Because if there was a crowd, he would have gotten warning the first time he hit the ball in the side fence, and he wouldn't have hit the ball the second time. Johnny, tennis without fans. I'm going to give you my opinion here in, in, in just a quick minute, but I'm going to yield to you guys first because you both played there. You had the opportunity to play in front of a nice crowd back uh, in your day, particularly 1983 with wins over Victor Amaya and Peter Fleming en route to a grandstand court uh, meeting with Yvonne Lendl. And I know playing in front of the crowd had to be one of the thrills of your life as a pro, but did you feel that these players playing – under the conditions that they did with no one in the crowd sort of allow them to just sort of be a little bit more businesslike about things and to not get caught up in the rush of emotion that comes with having that crazy New York crowd. Did this help make for better tennis in your opinion overall? I don't know if it, it necessarily made for better tennis. It's possible that, um, you know, when I think back to like when I played a, a top player, in Lendl, um, had there been no one in the stands, I probably would have been a lot looser and not as nervous because it would have been to me like a practice match. I, you know, with the crowd there, I think that is part of the reason that people get nervous. You know, you've got a lot of people in the stands. It's part of what, what brings the pressure. And so I think the underdogs, the players that aren't as highly ranked probably had an advantage because it, it took some nerves away. I was very impressed, though, um, like Matt said, with the level of tennis, regardless of the fans. They knew what they were playing for, and it was a U.S. Open title with or without fans. And so I, I just believe that they went out, played their guts out, and I just enjoyed the tennis. Uh, it did seem a little different, obviously, but um, in the end, uh, we, have, we have two champions, and no one knows whether they were fans or not. I mean, they're, they're, they're U.S. Open champions. 
Matt, we know that this one's going to leave a mark with respect to the opportunity that Alexander Zverev had to serve for his first major championship. But let's go back earlier in the tournament when we saw Stefano Tsitsipas, who would have to have gone into this tournament under these conditions as one of the favorites, and lead two sets to one and five one in the third and 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 have six match points come and go against Borna Chorich. Would the fans in the stands that night have made for a different outcome, or was this just destiny on behalf of Borna Chorich and Stefano Tsitsipas just fell into quicksand and couldn't get out? Actually, yeah, that's a great question, I have to say, because I'm thinking that some of the decisions that I've made have definitely been made because you're charged up because of the environment, and that could be uh, screaming fans uh, more so. So I would have said that uh, all in all, no, the fans don't make a difference. The greatest players in the world, they don't play better with fans there. They just deal with it better than the lower ranked player. The best players in the world are the ones that can look you in the eye and they don't care what your name is, Johnny or Andy. And they say, Andy, Johnny, today is not the day you're beating me. I don't care if 20,000 people are watching or no one. So I think for, to Johnny's point, I think the lower ranked player plays better but I think the high-ranked player doesn't necessarily deal with a crowd better. I think they just focus on you. I think Tsitsipas would have get charged up on those match points and maybe would have serve and volley, rush the net, and using sort of the momentum of the, the buildup of the, the, uh, the Greek support that he would have had in, uh, in New York. Johnny, you played very high IQ tennis in your career, as did Matt's. And a guy that I think is starting to do that, but maybe still has a little ways to go, is Denis Shapovalov. I certainly like what I'm seeing from him. He seems like he's taken a page from Nadal's book with regard to the inside-out forehand and some of the patterns that we've seen from Nadal. We talked about it, and we both agreed that there's a little bit of Tomas Muster in that backhand, and he's maybe angling up the serves similarly to the way Johnny Mack did back in the day. So certainly that's a combination of weapons that can take him a long way. He seems to have a great attitude and great energy, but from a purely IQ standpoint, do you feel like he still has a little ways to go with respect to, call it, big match management? I do a little bit, but, um, you know, I actually was thinking Shapovalov could have made a really, really deep run in this tournament. I mean, he was playing really, really well. He uh, had a great match against Goffin in the round of 16, and I was surprised he lost to Karina Busta. I thought he was going to win that match, and he lost a couple of tight tiebreakers in the second and third sets. He, he wins the fourth set 6-0. And, you know, after that fourth set at 6-0, I would have thought for sure he would have won the match. But Karina Busta came back strong and won it. But I really believe that he has got a tremendous serve, big, huge weapon, big forehand. And he hits the hell out of that backhand, that one-handed backhand. I think he's just going to keep getting better and better. I really wouldn't be surprised if he wins a slam on a hard court. I think he is um, as good as these all these young guys. And I think he, he's going to have a tremendous future. Andy, let me ask you a question uh, about uh, Denis Shapovalov. Uh, and you, t- you teach kids, and, and uh, you see these all the time, every day, more so than me and Johnny, uh, about the parent involvement. I know it's a sensitive question, and I'm going to ask you, because you're um, probably the most intelligent of the three of us. <laughs> Denis Shapovalov's mom 
is coaching him. And some of the behavior or body language I see from Dennis in that match against Carreño Busta, you, will, you would not see if he was coached by a former player or if Mikhail Yusni was there. What do you think? I mean, is there a point where it doesn't matter how good a coach your mom or your dad is? At some point, you got to cut loose and take responsibility for your tennis. And that's why Shapovalov falters a little bit to me. He still doesn't take responsibility. He's not accountable for every shot he hits. Sometimes he closes his eyes and just rips it and then kind of looks up at his player's box, which is mom. So Andy, you're in contact. Tell me about parent involvement and where does it end? Well, I'm going to look back on on a couple of players that come to mind, Matt, that when they finally did cut the cord and make that change and relieve their mother of their duties, at least as far as being the coach is concerned, I think of Jimmy Connors and I think of the way he was raised to be sort of the, the, the brat that he was. I'm not sure he ever really outgrew that, but he was raised by his mother and his grandmother. And we saw sort of what, what became of all of that. He became a great champion. So you can't argue that point, but as far as the on-court behavior, you could definitely debate that issue. And then the other one is Andy Murray. And I've gotten to meet Judy Murray and she is a lovely lady and, and a beautiful person. I think she's very knowledgeable, but she's still Andy's mother. And it was until Yvonne Lendl came along and stood there with his arms crossed with a very stern face and looked at Andy Murray like, your mom ain't here to help you now, boy, that he started finally winning majors. So as far as what Dennis may have to do to try to follow suit uh, and follow in the footsteps of a Jimmy Connors or of an Andy Murray, I think you've hit the nail on the head. As far as what I'm dealing with, I'm certainly not dealing with parents that I say, if you stop coaching your kid, they're going to start winning professional tournaments and major championships. But I am telling these parents that if you want your child to be able to glean a sense of maturity and independence and, and develop uh, the ability to solve problems on their own and internally, it probably works out best for you to go hands off for a while. Let this be their own thing. And let that be something that whether they become a great tennis player or not, it helps them become a better person because of the problem-solving skills that you can learn from tennis if a parent will just allow that. Couldn't agree more. Well said. Now, back to these players and some of these performances, Mats. One of the, one of the players that you mentioned on an earlier broadcast was Coco Goff and the run that she had at Wimbledon and the run that she had at the U.S. Open. And I think we determined that she was one of the, the players that probably would have to be considered a beneficiary of a raucous crowd. Uh, as raucous as it gets at Wimbledon, they certainly got loud and boisterous and they were behind her in 2019. And they certainly were in 2019 at the U S open, no crowd in 2020. She goes out to Sevastova in the first round. She loses the first set, comes back and wins the second, loses six, four in the third. Is there any way in hell she loses that third set in front of a New York crowd? Had she come back and won the second set of that match against Sevastova? Um, Johnny, I'm speaking out of turn here, but I'm going to say that I think there's a, a fine line there. When you're 15, 16 years old, I look back at my, my, my tennis and, and, man, you mean I'm playing in front of thousands of people? That would charge me up. And I think it would charge her up big time. And Sevastova would have had some problems. Uh, she is uh, sometimes gets sort of teary-eyed when things uh, doesn't go her way. So I think in that situation, 
the crowd would have helped Coco Goff because she can handle it even at, at her age. But put her five years down the road, and I don't think it matters if there's a crowd. The question for you, Johnny, now that we're putting each other on the spot, Serena Williams, was she helped or hurt by there being no people watching? What do you think, Johnny? That's a tough one um, because I, I don't know that it really matters. I think that Serena has been playing with a lot of pressure lately in these, these last number of slams trying to break that or tie that record of Margaret Court. I, I do think that that this tournament that she really dug deep in some of her matches and got through them, the one against Sakari, the Greek gal, was a tremendous effort getting through uh, that match. And um, I think with fans, I, I, I don't think it really would have mattered. I, I, I think she was, she's still playing with a lot of pressure on her. Unfortunately, I, it, it's just a, it seems like it's a big weight on her shoulders. I th think she was outplayed. I mean, she's, she's, you know, she's lost a, a step, I think, and she wasn't serving quite as well. But I gave her a lot of credit in this 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 event. All right, let's let's move on, guys, because we got a lot to get to tonight. We'll go to a break. I want to talk about the final weekend because there were some amazing things that transpired with or without fans. Some of the tennis and, and, and some of the situations that we saw were really incredible. I want to spend some time on that. You're listening to kickserveradio.com. We're taking a good, hard look at this U.S. Open. Played without fans in 2020, your champions, Dominic Team, Naomi Osaka, I'm Andy Zoden, along with Matt Zvielander, Johnny Levine. Don't go away. Lots more on kickserveradio.com. We'll be right back. I am joined by Melise Michael, and he is the product manager for SquadPod, uh, a new communication platform that really focuses on safety, security, and privacy. And Melise, we're living in a world right now that really does place a premium on those three things, particularly privacy. And that's where SquadPod is something that you absolutely need to consider with all of that in mind. Yeah, Andy, thanks for having me on the show. So that's a great point to kind of draw to your users at home here. And if they're out on the courts or wherever they are listening to this podcast is that privacy is key in the 21st century. It's huge. So what we do at SquadPod is we're bringing chat, video conferencing, file sharing, tasks, all these awesome features into one secure private place where you can use it uncensored. Once you put that information in, it goes dark for us. We don't even see it. So it's completely your own private space to communicate. Anywhere in the world that you are, you can still access whatever you put in there. So whether you're on a web, on a computer, or using your mobile device, you can access that information from anywhere on the go. And it's always going to be private and free. And as a coach or a pro, like in my case, at an exclusive private country club that might come in real handy for someone like myself to be able to communicate with the members of a private club and kind of keep that between us. Yeah. So as I, as I mentioned too, it's totally free. It'll always be free. The one thing we do offer is several different other pricing packages. There's one that goes from as low as 99 cents a month and it goes all the way up to 499 a month. Um, we do have a, a pro package for 999 a month even, but you know, basically it's free for users just to hop in, try it out, chat with friends, bring your family in there, bring instructors in there. It's squadpod.com, S-Q-U-A-D-P-O-D.com. He's Melise Michael, product manager for SquadPod. Melise, thanks again for being a part of kickserveradio.com, and uh, we look forward to working with you guys and, and keeping it private. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Andy. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. AZ, Johnny, and Matt. We're talking U.S. Open. And we, we kind of spent a lot of time talking about a lot of things that happened in the entirety of the two weeks. I think we all agree that the USTA did a great job. It was a great thing for tennis. But now let's talk about this final weekend, fellas, because between the four semifinal matches and the two finals matches, we had five matches that went the distance. And the only one that didn't was the Medvedev team match and Medvedev served for the second and third sets in that one. What were your observations, Matt, as a whole on this finals weekend in terms of the level of drama that it provided just based on the fact that we had, uh, I think we had a women's final where in 25 straight years, the player that won the first set won the title. Well, that didn't happen this year. So we saw a lot of things happen. I guess it's just chalk it up to 2020. Yeah. And uh, we haven't seen um, a two sets to love down uh, coming back since Pancho Gonzalez, 1949, I think at the U S open Gaston Gaudio 2004 French open was the last time that happened in the grand slam final. But you know what? The women, they set the bar so high because Naomi Osaka and Jennifer Brady has to be the best match of the tournament, male or female. They hit the ball so hard. They played such clean tennis. They moved great. They played smart tennis for hitting the ball so hard. So Osaka, Brady, that really was the final uh, when you look at it uh, afterwards in terms of level. And the bar was too high. Guys couldn't live up to it. That being said, Johnny, uh, we saw Victoria Azarenka, who had not won a tennis match on the tour in a year's time, suddenly show up at the U.S. Open with nothing but confidence. She goes all the way to the final. So be it as it may that Naomi Osaka and Jennifer Brady certainly played a women's tennis match uh, worthy of that kind of praise from Mats Vlander. you got to give it to Vika for showing up the way she did out of nowhere. She had been playing well. She won the Cincinnati event, which was played right at the U.S. Open. So she, leading into the tournament, she, her game was, was really peaking nicely. And she had um, obviously been, been off the circuit for a while. You know, she became a mom. And you could see the work that she had put in off the court to prepare for, for this event. I mean, she's been working really hard. It showed in her fitness level, her conditioning, and the way she was striking the ball. Um, I think she just, in the final, just got outplayed. But uh, she got that great win over Serena. And then um, actually thought she had a shot against Osaka, but Osaka was just too good. But got to give a lot of credit to Azarenka for, um, for the preparation that she had coming into this event in Cincinnati as well. Fellas, a couple of weeks ago, we asked Mary Carrillo point blank, does the winner of the U.S. Open in 2020 get an asterisk? And her comment was, well, you know, if a guy like Team wins it or if a Zverev wins it, you know, probably not. Those guys are legit. They could have won it anyway. 
now it's in the books and Dominic team won it. Zverev just as well could have. Mass does it get an asterisk or is this just a U.S. Open title for Dominic team and that's the end of the story, period? Yeah, there's a, it's a U.S. Open title for Dominic team and Naomi Osaka. I mean, there was even less top 10 women in the tournament, but we're not going to talk about that because Osaka won it. Um, so, no, doesn't get an asterisk. This is a proper tournament. Roger Federer is 39 years old, and he had an injury to deal with. Rafa Nadal chose to not play. Uh, we're not really 100% sure, but that has happened in the past. Of course, Novak... Uh, get defaulted that's different but the players we saw in the end of the tournament they found out uh, that I don't need people watching me I am able and willing and I want to play my opponent I don't care who's watching what the circumstances are so they actually got a little bit of a freebie in finding that out I think the players that realized that they are actually playing in front before the crowd or for the money they lost in the first week so we didn't see them in the end. Johnny, is it an asterisk or not? And one of the things that, that Andy Roddick mentioned when we asked him about whether or not this tournament was going to have the, the level of validity of, say, the one that he won in 2003, one of the things that he talked about was, was work ethic and conditioning. And honestly, today we saw a final where literally Dominic Team and Sasha Zverev looked like they were on elbows and knees crawling across the finish line of a marathon race with people almost having to stand there saying, come on, you can make it, you can get there. And like almost having to walk out onto the court and carry them across the finish line. Is that any kind of an indictment of the training or is that just a sign of the times coming out of COVID and nobody's going to be in tip top shape quite yet? I mean, the guys haven't played the best uh, five set matches. Um, They didn't have uh, Wimbledon, they didn't have the French Open. So this was the first best of five set tournament play that you've had since Australia. As far as the asterisk goes, you know, in, in there were a lot more players missing in the women's event. I think there were like 24, close to 24 of the top 100 weren't in the event. So yeah, maybe a little bit in the women's. But, you know, when you look at the history of Grand Slam tennis over the years, there were a lot of years in the 70s and probably even earlier where guys didn't play the Australian Open. Some of the women didn't play the French Open during team tennis because the money was better in team tennis. There's lots of different scenarios that you can look back at. But for instance, the men, so you had the number one player in the world playing in the tournament. I know, I know Djokovic got defaulted, but the guy was entered in the tournament. I mean, he was a, he was a competitor in that event. He was number one in the world at the time, and he hadn't lost any matches, I don't think, this year, or very few. In the end, the names are going to be engraved on that wall at the U.S. Open, and they're going to have that trophy. And to me, they've got the title. And, and whatever circumstances there are, they are. And I I don't see it as an asterisk. I really don't. All right. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about this. And I also want to take a look at the French Open because uh, our boy Mats Wielander is going to be heading for Europe to be on the call for Eurosport on that one. But when we come back, we're going to have our little Tennis Across America segment, which features Peter Rennert. Uh, a former Stanford teammate of John McEnroe's. Of course, John McEnroe was on the call all weekend long for ESPN for the U.S. Open. And we're going to hear a little bit from Peter on what he's got going on. And I think he's got some observations on the women's final, which I think I find very interesting. And I think you will as well. So don't go away. One more segment to go. KickServeRadio.com, AZ, Mats, and Johnny. More to talk about with the U.S. Open and the upcoming French Open. So please don't go away. 
nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Max Vlander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion, Mats Vlander now owns Gravity Tennis and Fitness. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with Mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with Mats, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to MatsVLanderTennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. And as promised, welcome to Tennis Across America, and we're joined tonight by the great Peter Rennert. He is right now uh, in Montauk, New York, during the summertime, lives in Fairfield, Connecticut. He is the founder of Telos Tennis, world-renowned tennis coach, and formerly a top 40 player in the world in singles, top 10 in the world in doubles, former teammate of John McEnroe's at Stanford, and a doubles partner of Max. Uh, at times on the tour. Mac was on the call for much of the U.S. Open. Peter, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us on kickserveradio.com. I'm happy to be here, Andy. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I wanted to share an observation about the women's final, about why I was uh, so fascinated before the match started. Basically, with Telos Tennis and what I do, what really fascinates me is what drives us as a tennis player. And I mean from the local club player who comes to take a lesson, why are they playing tennis, all the way to the finals. And the women's final, for me, summed up really interestingly because I believe what drives Azarenka is joy. She rediscovered the joy of playing tennis, and it was palpable. Every time I saw a picture of her on the screen, she was laughing, she was smiling, she was relaxed. And she, you could see she was just grateful for this opportunity to play again at such a high level. She just, she represented joy. And then you have Osaka, who represented purpose. She clearly had a purpose, and not just a purpose, like Azarenka had purpose, but Osaka's purpose was greater than herself. So I, I looked at the women's final, I thought, oh, this is really interesting. Joy is going up against purpose. I wonder what's going to happen you know, watching the match unfold and it's, you know, a set and a break and, you know, it's almost over. It looks like it's going to be 45 minutes and then things change direction. And suddenly, you know, in the end, uh, having a purpose greater than oneself seemed to win this particular battle with joy. And I always say that, like, I hesitated because joy was still happy anyway. Joy was still happy to be there, happy to be playing. 
And you could see that. So that was my take on the women's final that made it you know, so interesting for me to watch. Talk about Telos Tennis because it's that company and that philosophy that you have engendered that has taken you to a place where you can uh, have a take and assess a match like that and come up with those observations. I, I'd be curious to, to hear a little bit more about what you have going on specifically, Peter. So I think the fundamental problem for every single person who is learning to play tennis or everybody who is teaching or coaching tennis is what good is technique and strategy if I cannot integrate them? Or even more simply put, what good is it if I know what to do, but I can't do it? Like that's our fundamental, as a teacher or a player, that's the problem. Telos Tennis solves that problem because I believe the first step, the step that precedes technique and strategy for anyone who's learning tennis or teaching tennis or coaching tennis is to be able to create an environment that optimizes our brain's ability to learn. First, we need to focus on how we learn. We need to know how to optimize our brain's ability to learn, and then we can integrate the technique, and, we can, you know, and then we can do what it is we need to do. And it's true for the teacher as it is for the player, and it's really simple, and that's what Telos does. I've already created an entire online curriculum, and the exciting thing now is that I realized all the players are using it, but like the teachers don't know it. And you teach tennis, I teach tennis, and it's really frustrating when you're trying to get someone and help someone to get someplace and you can't get them there. So I'm getting ready to introduce an online curriculum that specifically is for teachers and coaches and teaches them how to create an environment to optimize the brain's ability to learn. Well, based on what you described with joy versus purpose, in the women's final, based on what you and I witnessed uh, at the end of the men's final, where certainly Zverev knew what he needed to do, but unfortunately for him, and it was painful to watch, was not able to execute at the most important times of that match. Uh, it sounds like something that all of us would find as very useful information to be able to integrate those two concepts. For the players, you can just go to Telos Tennis, that's T-E-L-O-S, Tennis.com, all one word, telostennis.com. And that's for any player who wants to learn how to raise the level of their game by learning how to integrate what they already know. And if you're a teaching professional and you want to be notified about the upcoming launch event for the course that I'm creating specifically for you, then you can email me at info at telostennis.com, all one word, T-E-L-O-S, tennis.com, or just DM me on Instagram at telostennis. He is Peter Rennert. He grew up playing junior tennis with John McEnroe, Mary Carrillo, and Vita Scarolitis at Port Washington Academy. Had a great college and pro career and now has some very, very important information for us as tennis coaches and tennis players. Peter, again, thanks so much for joining us on Tennis Across America. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Andy. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. AZ, Mats, and Johnny, we're talking U.S. Open, and then we turn right around. These guys go over across the pond, those that choose to do so, to now go to red clay. Normally it's a transition from grass to red clay. Now it's a transition from a hard court to clay. What will that be like, Matt, to go from these hard courts in the United States to now suddenly going across and playing the French Open so shortly after the U.S. Open? You know, it's actually, um, it's actually pretty cool to go from hard courts 
to a clay court because you've been hitting the ball so well and so clean because the bounce is perfect and you can take the ball on the rise. So I would say that uh, the French Open is going to have more aggressive tennis than we used to. I think they're going to take the ball early and they're going to try and rip it. Movement is tough. Definitely movement is going to be a bit of a challenge for some of the guys. Court precision is going to be tough to be too close to the baseline. But um, I think we have a great French Open. These guys, after the U.S. Open, I think they're ready and they're fresh. That's what I liked about this Open. Players look fresh. Johnny, you had a good go of it over there in 89 in the doubles, certainly, but the singles was always tough. And, uh, you know, that clay, and particularly at Roland Garros, has been considered to some extent a bit of a graveyard for American players. We've seen exceptions to that. We talked about... Uh, Pete Sampras, and I think Matt's had mentioned that he wishes that Pete maybe had chosen to play his hard court style of tennis on the clay courts as opposed to trying to be the clay quarter that he really wasn't. Do you think that the Americans going over under these circumstances are in even more trouble than usual, or do you think it could potentially be a better situation for them just because nobody's been playing? I think it could be trouble for them um, personally because um, – you know, they haven't been playing clay and it's not as natural for them. I think the Europeans, you know, have been over there um, and they're more used to the surface. So if, if everyone hasn't been playing on it, I think it's, it, it's more natural for the European guys when they get back on it than it would be for the Americans. I don't think they've prepared that long on it. They don't do well on it typically. Matt's you won this thing three times. You know what it takes uh, as well as anybody. Now that we've seen what Djokovic has gone through, and it just seems like it's episode after episode, and Nadal just seems like he is laying in wait, is it possible that age 34 that Rafael Nadal is an even more prohibitive favorite to win this thing, to win number 13, than he has ever been? No, <laughs> no, but that is not the case. Um, this is the least favorite that he's been for a long time um, because he knows the other guys are getting better. I think Daniel Medvedev last year in the U.S. Open final really uh, helped the locker room out by making the players realize that, listen, you can actually take Rafa the distance and he's going to get really tired. Uh, Rafa... Uh, two years ago, beat Dominic Team in the finals in three straight sets, and he was cramping in his hand in the third set. So I think Rafa has shown signs of age and uh, that there's a stress level that he has to deal with that, that affects his, uh, uh, his muscles. He, he gets more fatigue, I think. So now, I think Rafa has more respect for the Dominic Teams and the Saja Zverev. I think he has more respect for the younger generation than Novak or even Roger. Uh, and that's Nadal being humble uh, and sometimes too humble. But I do think he does not come in as the heavy, heavy favorite. I would say it's the favorite, but not by much. Dominic team, I think, goes in as the favorite. Uh, just as a follow-up before I go back to Johnny, though, Matt, do you not think that having played the U.S. Open, particularly as exhausting an effort as – Dominic team just put out is advantage Rafa just from the standpoint of all of the travel, the potential quarantining and everything that goes with it. And then just the emotional expulsion uh, of energy that the Dominic team just 
put out to win his first major that that puts a thumb on the scale in Rafa's favor or no? Um, you know, that's possible if he doesn't recover from it, I suppose. But I think if you weigh the pros and cons, having won one, uh, the confidence on uh, his second uh, favorite surface in Harcourt's clay being number one, I think that uh, overall, I think it will, it will help him. So, again, I think Rafa is more Rafa than anything. I think Rafa is, is sees the other players as way more of a threat than we think he does. And I know he does because I've heard him say it. And I know the people around him also try to convince him, Rafa, what are you talking about? You just won the four out of the five lead-up tournaments. How can you not be a favorite? So I think Rafa knows that. But also, he knows how to play five sets. And I think that's where the older guys are better. They know that momentum will switch back and forth for five sets, and you got to ride it when you have it. That's where the guys that grew up on clay, I think. We talked about American tennis. I want to mention that not American tennis, but people that grow up on a hard court, it's harder for them to grab hold of a momentum that slipped out of their hand. On clay, you learn how to do that because you're never playing perfect tennis on clay. On hard court, you can. Taylor Fritz comes to mind against Denis Shapovalov. He was playing excellent. Suddenly, Shapovalov came back, gone. So I think growing up on hard court, it's you don't learn how to solve problems as much as you do on clay. And that's where the Europeans, again, um, Americans got to start playing on clay more when their kids learn how to slide, learn how to construct points. Uh, and, and everybody should, because now another clay court specialist won a hard court slam, Dominic Team. All right, so let's shift over to the women's side of this question, Johnny, and, and ask now that Serena has, again, unsuccessfully gotten to number 24, as you alluded to earlier, you made some positive comments about what you saw from her, but she's going to turn 39 years of age during this French Open. She has probably lost half a step. She's not the big bully on the block anymore, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way other than to say she used to be able to slug you right off of the court. But we've, we've seen players go out there and slug with her, and on a clay court at Roland Garros with the amount of patience and emotional resilience that you need to have, do you give her any chance of going over there and winning a French Open and, and tying Margaret Court at Roland Garros? I don't see it. Um, I think that uh, her serve gets neutralized a little bit, uh, obviously, on clay versus the hard court. That's her big weapon. Um, and then I think the, the physicality that it takes to, to grind out the seven matches on, on red clay where the points are longer and more grueling, um, I think her fitness level is probably pretty good for her. But, it, I, you know, when you're competing against these young gals that are in tremendous shape, I think that's going to affect her too. I, I just, I think that, you know, the points are, they're, they're going to go longer and she, she makes errors as the points, you know, go on and she's not able to hit winners and it's harder to do that on clay. So I don't see her, I really don't see her having a chance to win the French open with, with the, the contenders that are, that she's going to be going up against. As I was asking you that question, I couldn't help but notice since we're on zoom that Matt's had sort of, gesticular body language that's indicative of agreeing with what you're saying. So, Matt, I'm going to let you comment on Serena's chances on the dirt. You, you, you said it before, uh, Andy, about um, Dominic Team and them being exhausted. Uh, I think the bubble 
the bubble helped players to really focus. And somebody like Serena, she didn't have to deal with all the nonsense that she has to deal with when there's a crowd, when there's media, and they're going to ask her these questions about number 24 and whatnot. So I feel like you saw the players hang out in their uh, the, the suites that they were given were sponsors. You usually sit and have a few cocktails. They were hanging out. They were sunbathing. So I think the only stress they've had are the matches that they played. Compare that to a normal year in New York where you sp- spend two weeks in Manhattan and the people are going nuts and screaming and, and you, you're, you, your adrenaline is going up. And down. I think they're all fresh because of the bubble. And I think Serena will be fresh and she's going to welcome a few thousand French people because they're all rooting for her these days because they want to see her. They want to be part of history. But I also like to um, start a a column uh, uh, or petition. Can we just give her the 24th? She's the greatest (laughs) player of all time, male or female. Who cares if she wins 24 just because Margaret Court won 24, most of them not in the open era. So I think Serena, I mean, take it. Take it. Play if you want to play. Do you enjoy it? I think she enjoys part of it, but I'm not sure she enjoys 100% of the matches that she's going through anymore. And it kind of pains me to see her in certain situations when she emotionally is not uh, comfortable. Before I let you guys go for the night, tell me, Johnny, and then Matt will give you the last word because it's French Open related, uh, what do we need to see at the French Open to make us feel like we're returning to a sense of normalcy? Do we do we need to see Rafa win another one? Do we need to see someone evolve into the position of being able to knock him off? What would you love to see happen on the clay courts at Roland Garros, Johnny? It'd be fun to see a new champion, uh, someone uh, unseat uh, – Rafael Nadal, uh, 12 French Open titles is, is a record that is one of the greatest sports records of all time, um, along with you know Michael Phelps with his gold medals at the Olympics. I, I think it's one of the greatest feats that we've seen in sports. To see him get knocked off would be really big news. I'm sure he's been training hard now on the clay. I think he's got the Italian Open coming up, so we'll see. we'll see what his preparations have been like. You know, when he gets back to that center court at the French Open, that's his home. And um, I still, I know Matts thinks that uh, he's not the favorite. I'm hard-pressed not to think that he's the favorite at this tournament. Can't count Djokovic out, though. I mean, he's he plays well against uh, Nadal, and he's got a, a, a great record against him. And, um, you know, he has, look, he had the one hiccup and he didn't even lose the match. So he's still undefeated this year. So you can't, you can't count Djokovic out. I got to believe that those two guys are the two favorites for the French Open. It'll be fun to see what happens. And then Matt, before we let you go, you, you were on the call for Eurosport with the U S open. You'll be on the, on the call for Eurosport for the French open, which you won three times in 82, 85, and 88 when you go to call that tournament you you must be considered among the royalty of of the champions of all time i mean you and bjorn and guga and obviously rafa now at this point the guys that won it multiple times have to walk around like uh like they're just you know greek gods walking onto the premises what is that experience like for you to just go back to the scene of the crime of your very first major a tournament that you dominated 
I, you know, we used to be treated like royalty there until Rafa won 12 of them. <laughs> <laughs> and then now it's not a big deal. How many did you do? Oh, you just won three. Um, no, it's unbelievably fun. Obviously, uh, it's very close to the hearts of European players growing up on clay. Um, so, yes, it's very special. I think that uh, returning to normalcy would be if Nadal wins it again. But uh, to me, it's really important that uh, the ladies are stepping it up to the point where they're dethroning Serena uh, along the way. And she still is playing some great tennis, maybe not at her best, but pretty close. And they're beating her. And the men's side, what we don't want to see, I don't, is Rafa Nadal taking out Novak Djokovic in the finals or vice versa, and then beating Team and Zverev along the way in three straight sets or four easy sets, and then there is an asterisk next to the U.S. Open. So we don't want that to happen. We want the young guys to step it up and wipe the floor with Nadal and Djokovic and take over. And then we can hope that Roger wins another one or Rafa another one. But I mean, I think the, 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 this is a chance for the young generation to step it up. They're doing it on the women's side. And I think the men might have started here, but they need to do it again in Paris. Well, safe travels going over there, boys. It's always fun. Uh, we weren't sure that this thing would would take place, and it did, and it did in, in, in pretty glorious fashion. Congratulations to Dominic Team winning his first major. Congratulations to Naomi Osaka winning her third and her second U.S. Open. I'm Andy Zoden. He's Matt Vlander, the seven-time major winner, former number one in the world, along with Johnny Levine, former two-time All-American at the University of Texas, Lots more to get to when we come back. We'll be having great guests down the road. We want to thank Peter Renner for joining us this week on Tennis Across America. We've got some exciting people to, to look forward to as we go. This is KickServeRadio.com on Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you real soon. Enjoy the French Open, everybody. <laughs> 